Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Charlie Morrow has worn many hats over the course of his half-century career. He's a composer, conceptualist, and performer whose creative projects have included chanting and healing works, concert performances, museum and gallery installations, hospital sound environments, large-scale festival events, radio and TV broadcasts, film soundtracks, commercial sound design, and advertising jingles. He is also the composer and producer of the show's theme music. And now he has published his first book, The Book of Numbers and Spells. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Charlie Morrow to our show now. Hi, Charlie. Hello. What a treat to be here. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that this anthology is a rather unconventional work full of of uh, number and letter games, uh, uh, pieces and writings from 1974 through to last year. Yeah, it uh, seemed to, that it was time to put the two halves of my life together. You know, uh, I'd been mainly working as uh, on projects, project, project, project. And um, as for writing, I was a m- music critic. Wrote for the Soho News, and uh, you had your own magazine for a while. Yeah, well, we published Ear. Yeah, Ear with uh, Rip Heyman. Uh, happy to say that ear all over 200 issues will be digitized and made available through NYU Bops Library sometime around the beginning of 2021. But it's no longer being published. Uh, well, we stopped publishing in 89, mm-hmm. 90. Mm-hmm. Uh, was uh, a museum, a, a publication of writings of artists for each other, mm-hmm. and uh, in any case. Um, I reached the point where I understood that I had never never had a book, and a friend commented on a bunch of uh, of, of writings that seemed to fit together. So I uh, assembled them, and my label, uh, which is Recital, uh, Sean McCann out in L.A., uh, designed the book and pulled them all together. And there was some correspondence, particularly in the area of the number pieces, with Tom Johnson who's in Paris and had mm-hmm. also been working with numbers. so uh, And contributed to this book. Contributed to the book, absolutely. So uh, what I see is a lot of columns of letters and, and numbers. Uh, are they uh, meant to be performed the way I might read music? Uh, very much so. Uh, a lot of the, starting with the number pieces, which are the ones from the, uh, from the 20th century, a lot of my pieces had uh, kind of hidden in their structures uh, numbers, or they had rhythms, mm-hmm. so the rhythm rhythm of the count uh, would hold it together. So the number of pieces are designed uh, to be either read silently to yourself or uh, out loud. And you say that a, for a musician, counting is part of the job. It certainly is. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't count. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything, you have to know a little bit of math even to do a simple 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> uh, yes, I was reminded of that recently um, it's been many years since I sat in an orchestra as an orchestral trumpet player, but I was in. I've been living part time in Finland over the last several years, uh, and I had the opportunity to play second trumpet in a, in a local amateur uh, symphony orchestra, and it is hard. Hmm. Most of the time, you don't play, and then when you do play, it's often very tidy little licks that you cannot screw up on. <laughs> And breathing is really an important part. That's also part of the the counting, isn't it? Absolutely, I think. When well, you're playing a trumpet, you play bugle as well, which is a harder instrument to play. It's true. I start. I, I do very much like instruments. When you were a kid. When I was a kid, yes. So now, so uh, this is printed in a limited edition. Can can it be downloaded? 
At the moment, uh, you can place orders from the uh, publisher, Recital, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not sure if he's got a download yet, but there should be, absolutely, because the limited edition, we're all signed copies, but uh, we do want people to be able to download a copy. So if you don't find an exact order form, and I think there is one on Recital.com. Mm-hmm. You also have a, a YouTube channel? Uh, not at the moment. No. You did? I did. Well, there's... Uh, channels of existing work yeah your book includes a wide range of works shamanic inspired dream chants animal language events performance pieces based on modern signal codes and ancient numerologies soundscapes derived from the new wilderness of urban spaces and the old wilderness of arctic tundras uh, recompositions of familiar repertory works and of, of long neglected or forgotten chants and hymns works from multiple mass single instruments ocarinas tubas cellos harps international radio events and celebration of winter and summer solstices all in 130 pages oh, wow. and have i left anything out uh, <laughs> you know, you've got mainly the uh, blueprints for these things uh, <laughs> uh you can find uh from Recital, it's www.recitalprogram.com. Hmm. This and, um, and and other publications with uh, the sound from some of these larger events. The the poet and your sometime collaborator Jerome Rothenberg writes that you are quote both the leading proponent of an active ethnopoetics in avant-garde musical performance and a master of new technologies as they come into contemporary practice. So. Uh, can you break that down for us? Well, I think the um, the shaman, sh- shamanic part is maybe the harder part to explain, which is the uh, my interest in ceremonial sound and the time that I've spent learning about old, older customs and uh, from Native American groups like the Navajo and such. Exactly, and from uh, my own Jewish tradition. Uh, I was reminded uh, on the plane over from Helsinki. Uh, a young fellow from a Chabad in Paris came and sat next to me. He said, do you mind if I lay tefillin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a prayer ceremony. It's a prayer yeah. ceremony that goes back a very, very long time, and it relates to the com- commandment in the, uh, in, in the Judeo-Christian testimony, uh, which says that you're supposed to thank the Lord uh, by, uh, on, the, on the doorposts of your house and on the frontlets of your eyes and in your heart. And the ceremony that ties that up is quite interesting because it literally has little blocks with scrolls inside, and uh, and it has a uh, leather straps, and you tie that around your arm with seven and a half turns, and uh, you you thank God for uh, allowing you to spend time on Earth. It's and you a, do that every morning. Supposed to, exactly every mm-hmm. morning, and uh, I, I was reminded by this guy who sat down. He said, "Did you ever?" do this. And I said, as a matter of fact, when I was going to be bar mitzvahed, my grandfather, my dad's dad, who didn't live with us, came and visited, and he was horrified that I didn't know anything about it. (laughs) And uh, because it is kind of a lost tradition, except the more extreme uh, religious end end of Judaism. But it's a a beautiful ceremony, and uh, I found myself very moved to um, actually observe it and find that it's part of my tradition. In your introduction, you thank your parents and your grandparents for teaching you the ropes. Uh, is it important to, to know that both of your parents were psychiatrists? It, it was, because I, 
Dr. Dad and Dr. Mom <laughs> were, were jokes in the house. But did, in any way, did that influence you as a musician or the, or the kinds of musical things you wanted to explore? I think enormously uh, because uh, my parents were conceptualists and in our home learning was very, very important. You always had to keep studying. And um, I think as uh, therapists, they were always trying to figure out how people could be healing uh, in a way... In, for others, and so the, I was very influenced by that that aspect of it. Uh, I think on a, music is something that helps heal things. Uh, definitely, people. I think it's a, a definitely a healing force. I mean, a large part of my work has been in the beginning healing ceremonies derived from uh, various traditional sources, and in recent years, I've been putting uh, various kinds of sound into hospitals in, in order to help various uh, medical or health activities be more successful. And so the notion of healing is widely expands. Recently, I've been meeting with an organization called PropTech, which is an international nonprofit that's dedicated to making the building that humans are doing uh, not just turn a profit, but turn a profit on the human level. And uh, I was deeply moved to discover they weren't just interested in that the money should turn out right for the investors, although it is a money-driven nonprofit, but that the house, following the ecosystem uh, of a development from an I, the money to build the house, that the house, whether a single person or multi-person, should provide a good life and that it should be able to be used by other people and passed along and managed in a way that supports people. And I said, that's a lofty ambition. What in the world made you think that big? They said, well, the fact is that we've determined that every month for the next 40 years, a city the size of New York will be built around the world, distributed into little building projects, and some of them quite grand. So that's a, uh, a staggering thought that they are actually taking responsibility that living in those places should be actually good for people mm-hmm. and then good for the money people. Now, you studied with Stefan Volpe, who was a, an avant-garde composer, uh, famous for his unconventional works. Do you think he'd be surprised by how your career developed? I don't think so. I thought he was an extraordinary and inspiring person. Uh, he had been born in Germany, lived in Israel, and came to New York in his career. Well, he escaped from he, Hitler. He escaped from Hitler. But he always was, wherever he was, he was not a bitter man. He had a, a positive spirit. He, cha- he trained people uh, such as Elmer Bernstein, who was a movie writer. Mm-hmm. People like Ralph Shavey were extre- extremely academic writers in the post schoenberg tradition. Uh, and jazz musicians, he was just available to people. Uh, and Volpe uh, had, had also an, a remarkable encounter um, with Niels Bohr, who was a friend of his. Mm-hmm. Quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics. And so the way he wrote music believe it or not, was that you sat down at a score, and if you had a note, let's say the note was ba, and you wouldn't use that ba again anywhere else, that ba, for it to go then up into a ba, would have to somehow belong in the upper register. So he had, it, the way Kandinsky thought of all sounds and all images being alive, Volpe had that idea that every sound was on an energy level, and if you're gonna move it from the energy level that it was on, just like if it was part of an atom, you actually have to create a believable spin. 
Well, that's something that you had to do when you were playing bugle or trumpet, wasn't it? Uh, because uh, you're, it's all about energy levels, uh, as well as, I guess, how you move your lips. Uh, and you've done a, played an awful lot of instruments that, or, that you have to blow into, uh, conch shells, uh, cow and goat horns, Jews harp. Uh, you, didn't you, I, I see a conch shell in front of you. Did yes. you bring it for a reason? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. It was, of course. It's, uh, <laughs> How do you play a conch shell? Well, this particular conch shell has had the end made, cut off and made smooth, and you see, it looks just like a mm-hmm. trumpet or a French horn. A mouthpiece. And so, um, this was handmade. Uh, it was sawn off. We had actually an orchestra of a hundred players. We used to march in peace parades. Uh, we marched at the head of the Halloween parade at one time when Ralph Lee was doing that. So it was a, it's. One of the oldest instruments in the world. It's kind of like a megaphone, but at the same time, it enables you to um, to do a lot more than just speak. Uh, so. But how do you change the the, uh, the key? Well, um, is this like trombone, where you just you have to move your lips and uh, use your tongue? Exactly. Uh, the key to it is uh, the um, combination of pressure uh, from your lungs and then the way you hold your lips. So that uh, whenever you're playing a brass instrument, whatever you're doing is an amplification of buzzing. So if you had... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I was taught as a trumpet player by a guy uh, who had spent his, pit, his life in the orchestra pits uh, of North New Jersey. And uh, his name was Sam Martinique. And I never forgot the first time that I uh, had a trumpet lesson with Sam. I, I must have been 10 years old, and he was retired at that time. And I came to his house in Passaic, and he went, I went down to the basement. He said, come with me down to the basement. He says, that's where I'll teach you. And he had a cornet, beautiful silver-colored cornet that hung up to a, um, a water pipe, a cold water pipe <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> And there it was balanced, and he walked right up to it, and he played the highest note that I'd ever heard played on a brass instrument. And he said, you want to be able to do that? Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that was the beginning of an obsession. <laughs> and, of course, uh, the, the bra- players, uh, brass players uh, talk about having chops because that's what that's uh, exactly. allows you to do that. Yeah, exactly. It's all about... So how do you... So this, could you give us an example on the contours? Am I pushing... This, or did you have plans to talk about that later? No, I think I could uh, conch a little for you. So, okay, uh, well, first let me tell people that my guest on Leonard Lopate at Large right now is Charlie Morrow, and uh, we are talking about his career and also his new book, which is called The Book of Numbers and Spells. <laughs> Well, you can't exactly play a, a melody with that. Although you, you oh, yeah. use your hand, you use your hand the way that a trumpet player would uh, put a bell in front of the. the it's true. 
Uh, a, a mute, what is it, a thing in front of the bell of, the, of his horn. Yeah, that's called hand muting or hand stopping. Well, I play a, a range of I play a range of sound on the instrument. I'm interested in the tiny little sounds on the breath because I I did a lot of composing for breath, but then uh, the instrument itself has a, a voice, and so there's a transition to making a full voiced sound with it, and that you can play you can play melodies with it as well using the hand stopping. Yeah, you have. I mentioned earlier you've worn many hats over the course of your career, including your famous bowler. Wasn't Art Garfunkel one of your classmates at Columbia College, and didn't he introduce you to the commercial music business? Yes, I was uh, fortunately uh, uh, at a graduate's party, I think it was a year after we graduated from Columbia College, and Art was there with uh, Paul Simon. He said, you know, I've decided, uh, even though I'm going to be a math teacher, <laughs> that I, I really, Paul and I had a lot of fun in high school, and we really we have a chance to record now. And you know, one of our our songs we recorded for Columbia is now is is, is, is suddenly got a lot of airplay, and they sang a bunch of uh, quite a few of their songs just for a small group of us graduates at Columbia. And after that, Art gave me a chance to get in on some of the early productions. You wrote some you? arrangements. Yes. Oh, you also uh, wrote arrangements for the Rascals and Vanilla Fudge. True. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet an awful lot of people who know about your work are surprised by that. You and you, you worked for John Hammond at at uh, at Columbia Records. I did. It was a seminal experience. Hammond was one one of one of the remarkable people that I've met because he was so nurturing. You know, I had coming up as a as a musician. In New York, uh, most most of what goes on is very competitive. The way Hammond worked was that he only worked with people that he felt really had something to offer and then nurtured them. And I think that that was a, a, a new learning for me. He brought some of the greatest jazz musicians to Columbia. Uh, and uh, our theme music, the, the music that you've provided for us, is from uh, a number of CDs of jazz. So jazz is also a part of the, 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 the Charlie Morrow vision. It is. I've enjoyed very much. I mean, the traditional jazz, this is a far cry from atonal music. I know. I have to say I'm a multilingual musician. I speak jazz. I speak experimental, uh, speak breath. In fact, in an essay from 1975, so this has been going on for a while, Tom Johnson writes that you're unpredictable, says you're quite capable of turning out a TV jingle in the morning, working on an atonal score in the afternoon, and improvising on a Tibetan scale with the New Wilderness Preservation Society in the evening. Is there something that ties it all together? I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Just the things you're interested in? Well, uh, I think that um, what ties it all together for me is being able to do something authentically. And I think that um, each time I've approached an ide- uh, a style or a body of work, I've tried to continue a discussion that continues from the last work. It's a series of parallel excursions, and each one has its own uh, realities and... and, and um, like you say, bubbles to break. So when something comes along, you just say, okay, let me see if I can do it. You, you uh, uh, worked with Charlotte Mormon, uh, organizing her annual avant-garde festivals in New York in, in the mid-60s. Charlotte Mormon, who I guess most people remember, performed at one point in the nude. It's true. Uh, I had met a guy named Norman Seaman, who was a expert concert promoter. 
And one of the things Norman did was that he had a club, so he could always fill seats in his in his concerts. So he gave opportunities to people uh, to perf- uh, play in good halls for a fee. And then he had an audience. Some of them would pay money for tickets, and others he'd give away tickets. So he had this uh, spectrum of, that amounted to a good business. He ran his whole business from a room the size of this studio. <laughs> and... Um, and he introduced people. He introduced me to Charlotte and said, would you mind, could you give Charlotte a hand? She's not very well. And that was, the, I think, what was extremely motivating to me when I did meet her. Uh, and she was working at that time uh, from her hotel room uh, over, over on West End Avenue. And, uh, and she was not well. She spent her whole life fighting cancer. Mm, yeah, she died young. Died young. And, um, but it was, an, you know, she always had herself so well organized. And uh, Norman was saying, look, Charlotte always knows what she's doing. You just do what parts of it you can because she's got a great mission. And, and were you financing all of this by writing jingles for TV commercials? At a, at the, yes, exactly. That's how um, I, I did it, through that and scoring. and uh, Diet Coke and, and one that everybody uh, remembers from their childhood, the hefty trash bags. It's true. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. <laughs> so that that probably fits in with your taste for musical pranks as well. It's true. a lot of humor in your work. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe what ties it all together. <laughs> uh, and which what Diet Coke commercial did you do? Um, it was the one, the most famous one, because it ran the, won the grand prize at Cannes. Um, showed a um, a night watchman falling asleep. And the whole Coca-Cola scene uh, unfolding, the, all the machines in the office started to have a dance, almost like in an Ernie Kovacs routine. Remember, mm-hmm. Ernie had this routine where he would have everything animated. The drawers would open and so forth. So the whole place came alive, and at a certain point, a, um, a tube came out, and it sucked up a bottle of Diet Coke. <laughs> and then at the, the last, at the end of the commercial, there was a belch. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was sort of... Uh, and I had a chance to write an orchestral score, and uh, it was, of course, my belch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is, uh, in effect, you doing creating earworms. Yes, because uh, because that's what people want with with uh, TV ads. Uh, was that fun to do? I think so. I think the idea. I mean, I'm a melodist, mm-hmm. and um, even though you can write atonal pieces. Yes. <laughs> but being a melodist, I'm always looking for opportunities to actually create melody. Uh, I mean, when, when you're on a, on a jingle, the idea is in a short amount of time create something that's memorable but that would not be obnoxious when heard the thousandth time to find this little spot where something stays interesting over a long period of time. And I think in the end I've been very interested in creating classics, even in avant-garde pieces. I mean, um, there would be a certain uh, similar quality to the earworm as to, say, an enti- titling a piece. One of my best-known pieces called Toot and Blink, mm-hmm. which is the piece I wrote for where DJs instruct two fleets of boats to toot or blink, mm-hmm. <laughs> play their horns or blink their lights. And so this uh, playfulness and good titling... Um, and some little melodic fragment, uh, I'd say that I've enjoyed campaigning this formula through my life. Uh, you, uh, you're no longer writing jingles for commercials, are you? I haven't had an opportunity. 
you'd think with your history they'd uh, they'd be coming to you again. Uh, you, I mentioned that uh, the the New Wilderness Preservation Society, one of your projects. Does that uh, organization, the arts organization that you founded in 1974 with Jerome Rothenberg, still exist? No, it's no longer existing. Uh, it's the basis for my archive. I have a lot of work on master tapes and photographs and correspondence. New Wilderness ceased to exist around before around the year 2000. Um, it just it was just uh, it, it it served its purpose in a way. It, uh, we did new old explorations of sound and oral poetry. We had the first audio cassette series uh, in America, in the world, probably New Wilderness Audio Graphics. It's now that's all available now uh, online, uh, and uh, so people can download that. But the idea of um, you know we we had a mission. Our, our mission was to create a poetry journal, a newspaper, a, a series of outdoor events, uh, and and a number of them political. I have to remind you that one of our great events got me cited in Congress. Mm. Um, in a positive morning, or negative way? Oh, it was, uh, the, let's say, the Republican congressman uh, from uh, from Staten Island who later went to jail for a chop shop where he was uh, monetizing city vehicles called me out for doing a concert for fish. But I did this concert for fish serendipitously on August the 9th. The night before, um, an unknown man called Richard Nixon <laughs> made himself very famous by abri- ab- abdicating the, the fish. What? Toot fish. Yes. T O O T F I S H. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, well, oh, 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 you're talking about which fish did we. Yeah. Um, I think it's called a toot it's fish. It's close to you're You're very close to it. Uh, um, and and Nixon, uh, that that was just around the time that Nixon resigned. Well, he resigned on Thursday night. Friday morning, we'd arranged to do a concert for Fish. And I had a very good press agent at that time, a guy named Morty Wax, who thought it would really call attention to the environmental work I was doing. I was doing events for the city of New York and the parks. And, uh, and it did, because once uh, the concert... Once Nixon resigned, uh, there was this period of time between our event, which was like 7 in the morning, and and noon when Ford would be sworn in. So there we were doing a concert, and everything that was press showed up out there, and we were an international news item. And um, I think it's—I'd love to play that piece again now. Of course. Well, first let me uh, tell our audience that my guest is Charlie Morrow. And we're talking about his long, complicated career, but also uh, announcing that he's published his first book, which is called The Book of Numbers and Spells. And it is from Recital 61. Okay. Uh, And this is the Tootfish piece? It's actually uh, the piece the guy's called the Toadfish. Toadfish, I'm sorry. very close. He's a coastal fish. Now, Toadfish make noise, create music of a sort? They certainly do. Toadfish do. And they're sometimes called sailorfish. They're famous on the West Coast because people would, they could be heard from underwater even. But the way that they, what I got, I got interested in the Toadfish because it was similar to patterns I'd heard in field field peepers uh, out in the woods. 
And the way the way it worked is that they work with a single sound, and one lead toadfish would go ah ah, and then the others would answer. They would they liked the chorus particularly uh, <laughs> uh, get together in groups like like birds, you know. And uh, and so if each one would be going ah uh, ah, uh, and each one of them in their own tempo, and the other would go ah uh, ah uh, ah, uh, and one of them would become aggressive, and that aggressive fish would try to capture the rhythm of the whole group. So he'd be going, ah, 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 at a slightly different pitch and with more emphasis until the, all of them started joining him in unison, at which point somebody else would decide to take over the group and begin their, ah, ah, and all the others would gradually move over and join that fish. And I thought there was something so marvelous. I didn't even know the fish made noises. They do, I mean, they but they were seemed to be listening to each other. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's probably called a toadfish because it makes a sound that's kind of like a toad. I think exactly that, mm-hmm. yes. And how did you even learn about the toadfish and uh, find it in, in a musical inspiration? My usual way. I did some research, <laughs> and I discovered that there was a couple called uh, Dr. Fish and his wife, Dr. Fish, at Rhode Island <laughs> Institute of Oceanography who were studying the toadfish. Toadfish, yes. I didn't know anything about it. I, I knew I'd heard that fish make sounds, but I went to I got in touch with an expert. I mean, uh, <laughs> that was, yes, comes from being Dr. Morrow's son. Oh, look it up, you know. Find somebody who knows what they're talking about. You know, this whole authority thing is very big in psychiatry <laughs> <laughs> and psychoanalysts. So I found an authority, and uh, I learned that uh, it existed. And it's it's a uh, you can find quite a few examples now of toadfish and sailorfish online. Uh, these but, but are you using them in this piece, or are you uh, doing a musical version of them? Uh, which piece now? I've lost You the... said you were going to play something that was inspired by Toadfish. Didn't you say that? No, I don't oh, think so. Sorry. Okay. But I may have forgotten <laughs> that I said that. <laughs> what are you planning to play for us? Oh, I was going to play a piece I did. One of the things that happened at that time was to come interested in making pieces for herds of musical instruments. So I wrote a piece for 40 cellos. And birds, we did that at Wave Hill, mm-hmm. and sixty clarinets in a boat. The, the Wave series. The Wave series, yes. And so, one of the most beautiful ones involved thirty harps in the Cathedral of Saint John the Divine. Hmm. And so, I thought I would play a little bit of that. Okay. Oh, just that's very funny. I'm, yeah. I'm getting a completely different piece here. Well, we'll play this one by mistake. Well, 
that's from an album called By the Dogs. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and actually, I... Uh, so there are a number of different tracks that all yeah, use dog howls? Exactly. And uh, it was actually... You did something with Allen Ginsberg, so I'm not surprised that you did it. Dog howls. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it was actually a gift uh, to donors to WBAI, I think around 1989. <laughs> uh-huh. And... Uh, <laughs> How many different dog things did you do? Well, I did um, a whole CD of dog sounds, uh, dog tunes. Mm. It was published by the group um, 2001, which is a, 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 book, a bookshop that did publishing. Mm. Uh, they also did Arkram. And, <laughs> and, and as you said, you, it was offered as a premium for BAI because we've been going to the dogs for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Marvelous. I would love to still hear that the harp thing that Let's you did at St. John's. see if we can get John. it to play. I'm going to click on, click on it and see if it plays. Yes. Very different from uh, what we expect from uh, from well, what's his name Winter Paul is it Paul Winter Paul Winter yes well, when he's at <laughs> that church uh, how important is the place uh, something is performed in to the success of a piece I mean do you, did you think about the 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 acoustics of the church when you oh, were totally. composing that totally uh, imagine. A bird's eye view for the moment of St. John the Divine, Mm -hmm. where this took place. I created a figure eight of 30 harps so that the sound could go from one end to the other because the cathedral had a very, very long reverberation. So the whole piece was timed to that. Now, every harpist had one earphone that was receiving a radio signal with a click on it and a conductor telling them what bar they were at. Mm. 
because I wanted it to be magical. It's a big, big place, and the idea of 30 harps playing by themselves in such a free way, in such a big space, seemed to me the the miracle (laughs) that I wanted to bring off theatrically. So uh, the space was everything, the size of the space and the reverberation. It led to the structure. Wave Music 1 is for 40 cellos. Yes. So that's... uh was that also performed at St. John the Divine? No, that was done at Wave Hill, believe it or not. It was uh, no, the- <laughs> not surprising. <laughs> so uh, you, you had to think about the, the nature of the instrument when you came up with the wave. Yeah, the wave, uh, in this case, um, all the wave series are based on the way waves move, mm-hmm. so that a wave would be in one spot and then in another spot. So over time, a single idea would be repeated. So these are all pieces about different kinds of echoes, either performed exactly or performs uh, by ear with variations. And so the 40, uh, 40 cellos were an interesting piece uh, in that it had a soloist and, fa- and four sub-soloists. All of those were really great, great cellists, world-class. And then the others were able to play more uh, easier music. And so it created a great circle of, of, of cello music where the teachers could bring some of their students and it could be a piece for people at different levels of learning could work together. And it was spread out in front of a building at Wave Hill so that you could, the audience would see the sun set over the Hudson River. It was time to the sunset. So this was, uh, you'd hear the sound of birds and then you'd watch the sun go down. The piece was timed exactly to the sunset. When people uh, wanted to do something unorthodox, did they say, okay, we'll call Charlie Morrow? Is that what happened? Because <laughs> you've created audio work, audio work for the National Museum of Natural History, audio tours for the Kennedy Space Center, the, the Great Platte River Road Memorial Archway, and uh, the Empire State Building, which is where we met many years ago. Oh, it's true. Uh, well, in, in my line of work, uh, I have had uh, many opportunities because um, I guess one, I like to stay busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it means I, I spend a certain amount of my time uh, uh, letting people know that I'm uh, open to doing interesting projects and, uh, and, and doing them and, and taking care of them. And there, there was the, the Little Charlie Festival that was a five-day celebration of your life and work uh, held in uh, New York City during the fall of 2010. Uh, did that cover the full range? It did, uh, and actually, uh, we met at that time. Mm-hmm. It was uh, quite, 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 quite special for me um, because it, we did the piece Toot and Blink, which was the uh, with WFMU uh, doing the job that originally had been done in Chicago as part of uh, the original broadcast, and then at the same time, uh, Harvest Works had some performances there of, of vocal works that were old biblical chants that were. Uh, I have a piece where we're telling the story of uh, Deborah, who was uh, in the Old Testament as the strong, one of the strongest women in history, uh, waging a war. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a very interesting piece to consider the nature, the nature of gender, and the nature of the endless nature of war. Um, and there were um, my piece. I had a church concert uh, in the little cathedral downtown. Uh, where we did pieces, uh, we did the yeah, I did the uh, some live performance with the movie Le- Moonwalk One, which was the film about the first. That was the NASA film for the first mm-hmm. moon landing. 
You did the soundtracks for a number of feature films. Yes, and I that did. was the one that was uh, Francis Thompson's film. It was. You also did uh, sound music for Ken Russell's Altered States. I was one of, one of the people that was uh, John Corriano, my classmate from Columbia, was a principal composer, and he gave me an opportunity to do uh, sections involving ocarinas because I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we, we need something on ocarinas called Charlie Morrow. <laughs> Maybe conch shells next week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then you, you, uh, you designed music and sound for the 13 Parts of Time Life's America series. So you've been all over the place. And then you have your own video, Paul's Story, uh, uh, Asami in New York. Yeah, I have, uh, well, part of my that journey. That was at the Margaret Mead Film Festival. It was at the Margaret Mead Film Festival, yes. It was part of my uh, endless journey north. And I spent quite, I've become an Arctic uh uh, very, very close to life in the far north. I spent part of my year in Finland, and uh, how did that happen? Well, it it all started with doing uh, a type of ceremonial chanting called dream chant, in which I sing and followed images in my head. And people said it sounded like yoiking. And as I performed that in Sweden, people said, "Well, up north, mm-hmm. there are these yoikers uh, who sing in a similar way. Why don't you go up and?" See, you know, and say hello. And so they sent me up, and I met a young producer at that time. He's gotten older, <laughs> Paul, Paul Andersima, and he was working on a film, uh, a kind of biographical film about his grandfather. Uh, he had been ostracized as an intellectual from that tribal, you know, uh, culture which respected only somebody who stayed with the herd, not somebody who stayed with the camera. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so he created a film, and I and he asked me to score it. And then when he came to, he eventually came to New York, uh, we made a film about him. But I've continued uh, to have my associations in the far north. For some reason, I felt very close to people in the Nordic countries. So you spend half your year in Helsinki and half? Half in the States, yeah. Usually in, you know, two months at a time. And uh, it doesn't really matter where you are if you're composing things. But uh, I'm, I'm curious about how you came to create the jazz recordings that we have drawn from for our opening and closing themes. You put together a number of all-star jazz groups for them. Well, it was a remarkable assignment. Uh, a colleague uh, introduced me to a man who was doing promotions for the three uh, for 3M, and they needed a series of of jazz recordings in mainstream jazz style. Now, mind you, I, when I did this, jazz had somehow stylistically moved beyond mainstream jazz. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, this was not free jazz. Time. This was not free jazz, and it wasn't in any way avant-garde. And so it was something like some of my jingle assignments. But uh, basically, it was an opportunity to uh, coll- collaborate um, you know, with, a, with, with musicians whom I knew well from session work uh, to create this work. And uh, it worked. It turned out beautifully. Uh, well, you put together. You wrote. You wrote many of the compositions. Did you write them all? I can't remember now. Well, I uh, did all the arrangements, and I uh, wrote the melodies for. I'd say about two thirds of them. Mm-hmm. So that must have been fun doing something that was kind of out of your normal. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I do enjoy challenging myself by being out of my, uh, you know, out of my sweet spot. And then, of course, it helps when you hire some of the best musicians in the in jazz. Yeah, it, it more than helps. Who, I must who say. did you have on those? Well, I think uh, the most remarkable uh, relationship was Buster Williams, 
Mm. He, he's a genius, uh, remarkable musician. But he, more he than opens that, our show with that bass solo. Yeah, he's just a great, great player. But uh, I think as remarkable was his openness to collaborate with another person because he's a person who doesn't need anybody to create well. And the fact that he found, you know, found 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 it in in himself to uh, make that happen. It was really a treat. Well, making music is often a collaborative effort if you're in a group or in an orchestra or whatever. But in your case, you seem to be interested in collaborating on all sorts of levels. You collaborate with poets and uh, people who are, don't necessarily make music. Well, in, in a way, uh, if I hadn't found my world with poets, I don't know that I would have had my career. Uh, I've uh, from my relationship with poets and experimental visual artists, I've actually made my way. I've made my reputation. I become an event maker. I'm somehow, by being intermedial, um, I found a world of like-minded people uh, through the poets, through writers like Dick Higgins, who are important to me. Uh, uh, there was a, a warm and collegial feel, feeling. I also had a very seminal relationship uh, uh, with, 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 with a musician early in my career that who was similarly plugged into the same group, and I think that meant a lot to me. That's Philip Corner. He's living mm -hmm. in Italy now. And um, we met playing, uh, I was playing trumpet, and he was playing trombone in L'Histoire du Soldat <laughs> at Columbia University <laughs> for a very strange conductor called Joel Sachs. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a great group. There was uh, people involved in that who were all intellectuals in one way or another, uh, I think Paul Ehrlich was in the group, you know. <laughs> it was just an astounding, astounding group. Uh, I forget who played bass. Maybe it was Noel DaCosta. But it was a, it was an all-star all, all -star group from all disciplines. And, and through Philip, I found my way into this multidisciplinary thinking. Uh, I, um, I must say, uh, he had a group called uh, Music Out of Silent Spaces, which in some ways jump-started the avant-garde in New York. There was a... He had an open spirit, uh, and he invited people to work on a series of graphics. He himself was trained not only as a composer but as a uh, a, a calligrapher when he was in the armed services in Korea. And he made beautiful drawings, and these would have a single idea in them, like touch the metal lightly. And from these simple concepts, he had one form. Every single session would be the same where you would lead to, from sound making to a quiet place in the middle, a meditation, and then come out again. And so all of that was in a way conceptual in the way that poetics is conceptual. And so that led me back, I'd say more through the field, more through the field of poetry than, th than through music, although I'm a musician. That's why you've collaborated with Jerome Rothenberg over the years. Uh, in 1973, you organized a summer solstice celebration, and then that ran uh, annually until 1989, 16 years. Uh, so what, hap what happened to that? It was a big success. Oh, I, it's continuing. Oh, it is continuing, just I, I, I not didn't, with you? I, uh, no. Um, actually, uh, no one picked—well, it continued in the city of New York uh, because the, another group started celebrating on the summer solstice. Uh, and so they had a citywide celebration. So they continued successfully and become a national organization. But then at a certain point, I decided that I would really like to do it again, but on a new model. So I did from Finland in 2015, uh, 
given the newer technologies, uh, we did 24 time zones around the world. We started at the international um, dateline and did an hour in each time zone of art and science. And we've done it twice now. And at the moment, uh, the Smithsonian has been my partner twice with that. And hopefully, it will become a Smithsonian project. Uh, I think it's more appropriate. It made it, I think it did what it was supposed to when it stimulated itself to become a national and international music celebration. In its new iteration, I would like to think of it as a cross-cultural celebration where the focus is on a dialogue between cultures in different places of the earth and showing how the tectonic ideas of culture have all flowed into each other but still have their own unique locations, uh, just as the harps in the cathedral are totally unique. And it's it's so important to be able to celebrate, get the celebrations in the right spot and then bring them together. Can you play another piece for us? Let's see. No doubt. Uh, Meanwhile, I'll tell people that my guest is Charlie Morrow, a composer and uh, oh, so many different things, um, performer, uh, conceptualist, organizer of creative projects, etc., uh, who's written for radio, TV, film soundtracks, uh, sound design for hospitals, uh, art galleries, you name it. And he now has a new book that he is just uh, publishing uh, that uh, kind of reveals his methods. It's called The Book of Numbers and Spells. Uh, and uh, he uh, is, uh, as I said, he's done so many different things that uh, one of the things he did was very generously offered to give us our theme music, which is uh, just some wonderful jazz pieces. We could have. Uh, there were two. It's a two CD set. Was it two? It's a. It's a. There are actually three of them. A three. And when we had to choose what we were going to use as theme music, it was really difficult, Charlie, because so many of the tracks really just seemed perfect. I, I know you didn't compose them with us in mind, but I, it sounded like you did. Okay, let's listen to something else. This What's is this? this is the wave music for a hundred musicians with lights. This was done in Central Park. And it sounds the, very Native American. Well, we had a local a, lo, a local boy mm. singing some of his local traditional music, welcoming the summer, and the moon was hanging in the sky. It was a full moon. And uh, each of the musicians then, was a, I had 100 musicians in a spiral.
Charlie, you have been credited with being the inventor of 3D sound. What is 3D sound? Well, first of all, I am only an inventor. Oh, of 3D one of the sound. inventors. Of one of the inventors. Um, what I've developed is a is called a method for create, you know, producing immersive sound, 3D sound, and uh, I have a two patents in this field, one for architectural reality and the other one for virtual reality use. And uh, So it goes into buildings? It can go anywhere. I mean, the idea was um, my ans- ancestor on this uh, idea, uh, a guy named Michael Gerzon, and I'd, I'd met this guy because he loved improvised music, and I was over for a festival with Derek Bailey, the uh, English guitarist, and Gerzon was recording us, but it turned out he was the inventor of ambisonic, ambisonics. He holds the patents, many of which are still being used, uh, for creating 3D sound, which means that when you play it back, you hear exactly hear everything in space exactly as if it was in the room. So like if you were to hear, uh, if you had a bird up there and a water down on the floor, you'd hear them in the right place. So this 3D sound in that respect creates a full sound picture. Now, you've also said uh, that you always wanted to remember your birth. Uh, I doubt many other people have imagined that they could, but you say you have? Well, actually, uh, I've remembered, the idea was to remember before my birth. I was curious, what were the first sounds? In vitro? In vitro. So um, I think I had built a sound studio, and in the experience of using the chanting voice and the breath, having it, I was wearing headphones just like I am now. When I built my first sound studio on West End Avenue, I was thrown back into my my memories, and I be, and I recalled what being part of my mother's operating system, so to speak, uh, and hearing sounds from outside me, well, wow. outside her. Uh, later on, I recreated this for German radio and a. They had a series of nighttime experimental music, so I created, you know, the sea within my mother. But the idea was that I remembered exactly where where my whole body was like an ear, where I felt every vibration coming all through me. I'm convinced everybody can get back to this because I think that we we all have those memories in our body. And I think what— But we don't have words. We We didn't have words at the time, so it's hard to conceptualize them. Absolutely, but— if you, I worked it backwards. You know, I remembered uh, what it was like to be born because it was such a violent experience of being kind of in a, a meat crusher. And then going back beyond that, I, I found I was able to remember when my eyes only saw flashes of light and before that when my ears would hear sound. And I think that the immersion into the world of air was is is the dividing line. If you want to take this journey backwards, remember what it was like to smell air for the first time. My experience of it was very easy because the doctor that birthed me stank. He had mm-hmm. horrible bo, or at least I, I had never smelled anything. And <laughs> let's say whatever he smelled like, I hated it. And it was, I think, becoming a made me a gourmet in life. <laughs> it started out with something I didn't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Charlie, it's been such a pleasure having you on our show. And uh, we're going to go out actually with uh, some Charlie Morrow music that we play every show. So uh, thank you for being my guest, and thank you for providing us with this wonderful music for our theme music. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the wonderful discussion. Mm -hmm. 
And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And if you go to the Leonard Lopate at Large Facebook page right now, you can find a video clip from Delphio Marsalis' performance on our show last past Friday right here in WBAI Studios with his 12-piece Uptown Jazz Orchestra. We are preempted tomorrow, but we will return on Thursday with a call-in special when we invite you, our listeners, to help us solve some of life's greatest mysteries. We'll see you then.